from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 23 through 28. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Well, how do you make sure something gets done? For me, I'm a to-do list kind of guy, so I need written reminders to make sure I don't forget the things I need to get done. But even still, uh, there are usually those things on my to-do list that I don't really have any control over, right? I think all of us can understand that. So maybe you're a dad and you ask your kids to mow the lawn, but you know it's kind of a 50-50 chance whether it'll get done by the end of the day, right? Or your boss needs a 15-page paper done or a report done by noon. You'll try, but probably not going to happen, just being realistic. Or your professor needs 45,000 books read by the end of the semester, right? At least it can feel that way. No can do. What about the big questions in life? The future? Our eternal destiny? Is there any way to be certain our salvation will finally be completed, accomplished? How sure is our hope as Christians? We come this morning to the last six verses of Paul's letter to the Thessalonians. So remember, Paul was a missionary in the early Christian church, and he's writing this letter to a church he has just planted a short time before in the city of Thessalonica. And as he's writing, especially over these past two chapters, Paul has been emphasizing their need as Christians to be holy, to be ready for when Jesus comes back. And now, as he comes to his final words, his conclusion in this passage that Daniel has just read for us, we see where he gets this confidence from. How Paul can be sure the Thessalonians will be finally saved, completely prepared for Jesus' return. So with our time together, let's look at two things. I know, it's usually three. Get over it. First, character of God. Let's see the character of God in this passage. And then second, let's see the work of God. That will be the bulk of our time, the work of God that we see in this passage. Character of God, work of God. So first, the character of God. Starting there in verse 23, we see Paul uh, blessing the church, but he's really praying for the church, right? He's praying for their sanctification. That means their growth in holiness and becoming more like a God who is holy. And he's praying for their perseverance, that they might endure to the end, either when Jesus comes back or they pass away. But as we read and then we get into verse 24, we see that Paul's basing his prayer, his desire for these Thessalonians, not on some wishful thinking, not on some positive feelings, but on the very nature and character of God himself. That is who God is and what he is like. So first in verse 23, he prays, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. God is the God of peace. Paul uses this attribute of God in his benediction at the end of Romans as well when he says that wonderful verse, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. 
But then in verse 4, we see another attribute that Paul highlights, the attribute of God. And he says, he, that is God, who calls you is faithful. Paul says that the God we follow is the God of peace and the God of faithfulness. That is, he is completely trustworthy, completely dependable. His commitment to his promises is unswerving and unchanging. He's not inconsistent. He's not flaky. He doesn't forget. No, he is completely, utterly faithful. And there is no greater testimony to this attribute of God than when we just pick up the Bible and start reading it. I mean, right away, we see God creating a people and that people rejecting him. And yet his commitment to love them anyway. We continue reading and we see them disobey and sin and rebel against him. And yet we see him remain faithful to his covenant to save them. We read through Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers. And then we go into the Old Testament histories and the Psalms and the Proverbs and the prophets. And we see this theme of God's faithfulness repeated over and over and over again. For example... Uh, You may recall the prophets often describing God's relationship with his people in terms of a man's relationship with his wife, right? And often Israel, the, the wife of God, was discovered to be cheating on him, worshiping other idols, flirting with the gods of other pagan nations. But throughout the prophets, we see God's condemnation of their idolatry and his promise to be faithful. When they were faithless, he would remain faithful. He never changed. His decrees stood. His promises were sure. His love never wavered. His purposes never faltered. As A.W. Pink writes, God is true. His word of promise is sure. In all his relations with his people, God is faithful. He may be safely relied upon. No one has ever yet really trusted him in vain. And ultimately, God's faithfulness was seen most clearly in Christ, wasn't it? God who had made a promise in Genesis chapter 3 to bring salvation to Adam, this first man who ever lived, made good on that promise thousands of years later when he, in the fullness of time, he sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the second Adam, the one who'd perfectly fulfill all of God's promises to his people. And so church, I think we can look at this and agree, yes, God is faithful. We sing songs about it like we have been. We can remind each other that God will be faithful in the future as he has been in the past. We can paste it on our computer wallpapers. We can paste it on our coffee mugs. But let's just stop and reflect on this truth. It's so foreign to what we're used to in our relationships with one another. I mean, we often have doubts that others will come through for us, right? That they'll be true to what they've said. So we couch our conversations with caveats and say things like, yeah, he's pretty consistent, but um, yeah, there was, that, there was that one time. Or, or sure, sh- you can trust her, I, I, I think. Church, hear this. God is not like us. He's perfectly faithful. There is no part of his being that is unfaithful. He will always do what he says he will do. And that means he will judge every sin. He will not leave any sinner unpunished. And he will save everyone who puts their trust in him. 
He will remain faithful to his covenant love for everyone who has trusted in his son. This is the character of our God. This is the God who calls us to himself, who calls us to holiness. This is a God who called the Thessalonians in the first place and caused them to believe the gospel. And this is the character of God that gives Paul this confidence to pray what he prays. So let's go to our final and longer point this morning. And that is the work of God as we look more closely at Paul's prayer. Look there again in verse 23. Paul prays, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul is emphasizing that our sanctification, again, our becoming holy, is the very work of God himself. The God of peace will be the one who brings ultimate peace to his people, ultimate salvation to us. The God of peace will be the one who sees to it that his church is holy when he comes back. God of peace will sanctify us, brothers and sisters. What grace, what assurance. I mean, listen to what Paul has been urging the church to do over these past two chapters. Chapter 4, verse 1, we ask and urge you to walk and to please God. Chapter 4, verse 3, abstain from sexual immorality, control your bodies in holiness and honor. Chapter 4, verse 11, aspire to live quietly so that you may walk properly before outsiders. Chapter 5, verse 6, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. Chapter 5, verse 12, respect those who are over you. Chapter 5, verse 13, be at peace among yourselves. Chapter 5, verse 14, we urge you, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. Chapter 5, verse 16, rejoice always. Chapter 5, verse 17, pray without ceasing. Chapter 5, verse 18, give thanks in all circumstances. It's like, that's a lot to do, church. So the Thessalonians had indeed been redeemed by this powerful blood of Christ, but Paul's saying their new hearts necessitate new lifestyles and a spiritual life lived out in the spirit. They're to grow in grace, grow in love for God, grow in knowledge of him. Paul's urging them to live out who they are, to live in a manner worthy of their calling. But here, at the very end of his letter, he says, the God of peace himself will sanctify you completely. He will make sure your whole spirit and soul and body will be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. No part of you will be left in sin. This is the work of God in you. So work hard to please God with the new life he's given you, but know this, God himself will do it. God will sanctify you. God will keep you. God has called you. God will do it. See, Paul knows the character of God, and he prays not with speculative wishfulness, but with this certain conviction. It's like what Joe read for us earlier in Philippians, right? Paul's in prison there, writing a letter to another church. He's in prison for preaching the gospel, and he says, I am sure of this, Philippians, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He's saying, church, you must be holy. But guess what? God is, God's going to make you holy. 
church, be blameless at Jesus' return. But you know what? God's going to keep you until that day. See, Paul has been emphasizing the return of the Lord over these chapters as this kind of catalyzing motivation for the church to be holy. The impending return of Christ is kind of like a focus lens on a camera for the church, just clarifying and bringing into crystal clear focus what they are to strive for in their lives, what's truly important, and that is holiness, being ready for Jesus, being more like Christ. But now at this end, he gives this church this amazing message of hope, this vital assurance. God will preserve them until that day. Notice there in Paul's prayer, there's no action on the part of the church, is there? Who will sanctify them? God will. Who will keep them? God will. Who has called them? God has. Who will surely bring the salvation to completion? God will. Family, let that sink in. Your growth in holiness will never be ultimately dependent on you. It will always be dependent on the ever-dependable one, the one who has never broken his promises. Christian, the hope you have is not based on yourself. It's based on the one who has saved you, this powerful one, this one whose plan can never be thwarted. One day, everything about you, Christian, will be holy. You won't be able to sin anymore. No more anger, no more lust, no more envy, no more anxiety, no more fear. I mean, can you even imagine that? God can. He's promised to get you there. Church, do you see how wonderful and complete and amazing the gospel is. The gospel is not give God your best and he'll do the rest. It's not God helps those who help themselves. If it is, can you imagine how miserable church would be? How miserable it would be to just gather together and remember that we just need to do better if God's going to be happy with us? No, praise God, the gospel isn't that. It's Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. The gospel is love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. The gospel is all I have is Christ. Hallelujah. Jesus is my life. The gospel is not about what we can do for God. It's all about what he's done for us. The gospel is not about better behavior. It's about a better savior. Friend, if you're here this morning, you're not a Christian. You need to realize that following Jesus is never about doing enough things to get him to love you. Following Jesus needs to first and foremost be about realizing how you can never do enough good things for him to love you. But when you could do nothing, when you were stuck in your sinful rebellion, when you were enslaved to your sin, God intervened. He gave his son, Jesus, to live the life you and I were meant to live but could not live. Jesus was perfectly faithful, perfectly holy, perfectly true. He was everything we weren't, but he came to die for us. Take our sin on himself. The sin meant, the death meant for us. Here's how the faithful preacher John Stott put it years ago. Every time we look at the cross, Christ seems to say, I'm here because of you. 
It is your sin I am bearing, your curse I am suffering, your debt I am paying, your death I am dying. Nothing in history or in the universe cuts us down to size like the cross. All of us have inflated views of ourselves, especially in self-righteousness, until we have visited a place called Calvary. It is here, at the foot of the cross, that we shrink to our true size. Friend, the cross is for you. The offer is for you. Will you keep your sins and your guilt to yourself, or will you cast them on Christ? If you give them to him, you have every certainty that you will be free. You will be saved. You will belong to the faithful God of peace. You will never face his judgment because he has poured out his judgment for you on Christ. So trust him today. In church family, we cannot leave this letter before we let this truth really sink down into our hearts. So let me give you three ways this closing prayer and really this letter of 1 Thessalonians as a whole should impact us as a church. First, we must be humbled. If the work of our salvation is finally the work of God, where's room for pride? You know, in the church, we can subtly look down on others who are struggling with sins that are weird, that we've never been tempted by. We can quietly belittle others because they haven't come quite as far as we have. But do you see how ridiculous that is? I mean, what was so great about you that made you more like Jesus? Wasn't it God's work in you? Who gave you the ability to even want to know God? Wasn't it God who gave his spirit to you and opened your eyes? Why are you no longer under God's just condemnation and you're actually able to live a life that pleases him? Isn't it because he has had such great mercy on you? Church, we are completely dependent on the grace of God. He's not an add-on to make our life complete. He is our life. He is our only hope. We're spiritually alive and talking about Jesus right now, this morning, because he decided that, because he saved us. Our life is rooted in his life. We have his blood pumping through our souls, giving us desire for him, giving us love for each other. We could never do that on our own, but he who called us is faithful. He has done it. So if you're further down the road of holiness than others in this congregation, friend, you should also be further down the road of humility. Pride has no place in a church that understands the gospel. John Newton, the man who wrote Amazing Grace, was near the end of his life and reflected and said, my memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things, that I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. Church, that is humility. That's a soul ready for Jesus to come back. We must be humbled. Second, we must be diligent. So maybe you're thinking about now, well, this is a bit easier than I thought. I mean, God's going to do this for me. 
That's awesome. If you're thinking that, I think you've misunderstood. No, I'm sure you've misunderstood what Paul is saying. See, the truth of this passage should work among our church in two ways this morning. It should afflict those of us who are comfortable and comfort those of us who are afflicted. Are you comfortable in your sin this morning? Are you at peace with being sort of a non-committal Christian? You know, one foot in heaven, one foot in the world, just covering your bases. If so, this passage should unsettle you. Because following Christ means being sanctified by God. Following Christ, belonging to Jesus, must mean growing, however slowly, however quickly, growing to be like Jesus. It must mean for you a growing hunger and thirst in your soul to know Jesus and share in his suffering and look forward to his return. The truth that God is working in you must compel you to work to be more like Jesus. Paul also says in Philippians, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Why? For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Church, we must be diligent as God works in us. I mean, look there at the, the last few verses. Look how easily Paul transitions from God doing everything right back to more commands for the church. Look there in verse 25. Paul rejoices. God's going to do all this work for you, but brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. He goes right back to bringing up things he's talked about over and over again in this letter. That is prayer, love for one another in the church, and a careful listening to God's word. Church, we are called to be God's people, and that means we're called to be people of active faith and active obedience. So Christian, are you nonchalant about certain sin in your life right now? It's kind of meh. Or are you discouraged in it? And you're often like, gosh, you know, I, I can't be holy. I can't be like that person. I, it's too hard. Sin is too great and attractive. I'm too weak. If that's you, do you see how much disrespect you have for the power of God at work in you? I mean, who are you, Christian, to deny God's purpose to make you holy? Your work to become holy is not lacking in power. Quite the opposite. The very God of the universe is at work in you. And he's not your life coach. He's your savior. You can be holy because he's making you holy. What greater motivation can we have to grow in holiness, church, than knowing that it is God's will to bring our holiness to completion? It's a win-win. One last application. So we should be humbled. We should be diligent. Finally, church, because God is faithful and God will complete our salvation, we must be confident. That's a perfect place to wrap up our study of this letter. Hopefully moving to the book of Exodus next week, which is a little bit longer. Dear church family, you who are in Christ and united to one another by his death and resurrection, you have every confidence that you will be kept until the end. God is your faithful sustainer. 
even in your darkest moments, you can trust him. Is that okay with you? Do you accept that? Are you believing that? Are you resting in that? A hundred or so years ago, a, a hymn writer was attending a revival meeting in Canada and met there a new Christian young man. And, and as they talked, he learned that this new Christian was just living in fear. He's incredibly anxious that he would not be able to stay a Christian that he would not be able to finish the race, that he wouldn't be able to, in his words, hang on. And the man was impacted by the conversation, and so he was writing a letter later to a woman named Ada Habershon and shared the story with her, and it prompted her to write a hymn she would later call, He Will Hold Me Fast. And the final verse goes like this, For my life he bled and died. Christ will hold me fast. Justice has been satisfied. He will hold me fast. Raised with him to endless life, he will hold me fast till our faith is turned to sight when he comes at last. So Christian, if you're weighed down by sin and discouragement this morning, if you sense a... a even if it's little, just this yearning for more of Jesus. If you're angered by your continual giving in to sin and temptation, if you, if you even feel distant and cold towards your Redeemer this morning, listen, God will preserve you. He will preserve you. He will keep you till the end. He will keep you until you see him face to face. As one author has put it, how do you know you will still be a Christian when you wake up tomorrow morning and every morning until you meet Jesus? The biblical answer is God will see to it. And what a reason we have to sing, church. He who calls us is faithful. He will surely do it. Let's pray. No, oh Lord, we are so weak in our sin. God, we confess as a church that we're prone to wander, prone to doubt, prone to leave you, prone to love the world more than we love you. And God, if we were left to our own devices and our own desires, we would never last. But we praise you that you have saved us, that you are saving us and that you will finally save us completely. That you have committed yourself in covenant, steadfast love to us in Christ, and you will fulfill that covenant in our hearts and bring us all the way home. So keep us, we pray. Help us, Spirit, to endure, to not give up hope, to cling to you. We trust you in Jesus' name. Amen.